All right, well, good morning. It's really good to see you all here this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to begin by uh, reading a little selection from Rudyard Kipling's poem called The Glory of the Garden, where he envisions England as an expansive garden, a people flourishing and full of beautiful life, produced by the various labors of England's citizens. Now, I know you're supposed to do three points and then a poem, so I'm really going to mix it up here. We're going to do a poem today and then three points in the sermon. I hope that doesn't mess you up too much. Here's what Kipling writes. Now, I only know about two poems in the world, so this is one of them, and that's why I picked it. I think it's really germane to what we're talking about today. Here's what he says. Our England is a garden that is full of stately views, of borders, beds, and shrubberies, and lawns and avenues, with statues on the terraces and peacocks strutting by, but the glory of the garden lies in more than meets the eye. For where, where the old thick laurels grow along the thin red wall, you'll find the tool and potting sheds, which are the heart of it all, the cold frames and the hothouses, the dung pits and the tanks, the rollers, carts, and drain pipes with the barrows and the planks. And there you'll see the gardeners, the men and prentice boys, told off to do as they are bid and do it without noise. For, except when seeds are planted and we shout to scare the birds, the glory of the garden, it abideth not in words. And some can pot begonias and some can bud a rose and some are hardly fit to trust with anything that grows. But they can roll and trim the lawns and sift the sand and loam for the glory of the garden occupieth all who come. Our England is a garden and such gardens are not made by singing, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. Ephesians chapter 4, actually in, ver in chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he portrays a flourishing and glorious society where every member is engaged in the work. And this society is not under the rule of the king of England, but rather the king of kings and the lord of lords. It's the kingdom of God. And on earth, the society of Christians, which we call the church. As in Kipling's garden, we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. There is one church. But there is a variety of gifts and callings and graces given. In Kipling's England, seen as a garden, all of it to be glorious and beautiful. Everyone has their own role, and the same is true in the church, that God gifts us and calls us differently, but towards one purpose, one kingdom, one faith. Today we'll wrap up our introduction of the big vision that I've been sharing with you with some of the core values and different things that I think are for us to pursue in the days ahead. And I want to do that through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. So let's read those together as we wrap up learning about the big vision. It says in verse 11, And he, that's Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. 
As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so the picture here is not a garden, but a body, the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and each and every member playing its part, unified together. And so today, we're going to focus on this passage, not under the heading of gardening, but Christian bodybuilding. Now, you can tell by looking at me, I know more about gardening than bodybuilding. But I take that from this passage that we read. But before we do that, I have something I want to do here. I brought a door prize, or I bought a prize for the one who can do this. Who would be willing to stand up and or speak really loudly from right where you're at and tell me what B-I-G-G stands for in the big vision? Just tell me what those four letters stand for, acronym. Anybody? Now, I've got here Lucky Tiger Tomatoes for your glorious garden. For anybody that can tell me that, don't... Okay, thank you. I was afraid I wouldn't have anybody. Missy. Okay, she cheated with her phone, but that's all right. She was willing to do it. You've got the notes. Oh, the notes. Great job. All right, there you go. So before we get into the Christian bodybuilding, let's, let's recap. And I want to show you that Ephesians chapter 4, actually in the book of Ephesians, we really see all of these things in the big vision coming together. First of all, verse 12, this is a building project. Christ is building something. He is building up the body of Christ. And so we said that the B of the big vision is building the kingdom, building the church. That's what Christ is doing, building up his body. Second of all, in verse 11, we see one place in this passage where God has done something. He has given people to invest personally in that work. Specifically, it talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are to invest in the building project. And I would also say that I think that part of this is the idea that everybody that's a part of the body of Christ is investing in what the body is doing. The other thing I think that we see, and as we talk about this today, I would say that what we're talking about today is the results of the gospel. It's gospel 201. Now listen, we're not talking about gospel 2.0, a revised or new version. We're talking about once someone comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, once a person becomes a Christian, then what? What is the outworkings of the gospel? Back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has made very clear that we are saved by grace. It's an act of God's kindness in sending Jesus. We're saved by grace. We access that grace through faith, by personal faith, reaching out and saying, yes, I can't save myself, Lord. I accept what you did in Jesus on my behalf. But he says, you're not saved by your works but you are saved unto good works. That once you are saved, the gospel begins to take hold 
and root, and it changes us. It changes our priorities. It gives us things to do. And I think we see some of that thing to do in Ephesians chapter 4. So it's Gospel 201. What do we do once we become a Christian and get that basic knowledge of Jesus? And then I would say the G, which stands for glory-seeking. Glory is throughout the Bible. I'm not going to rehearse what I shared with you before, but we see glory, especially in Ephesians chapter 3, multiple times. This idea that there is a beauty and a power. There is something about Jesus Christ. And when we see it, it's transformative. It changes us. The glory of God in Jesus Christ actually changes us. For instance, Ephesians 3.16. Paul says, I'm praying that by the riches of the glory of Christ that you would be strengthened in your inner man, that you would have a power when you experience the glory of Christ in a personal and profound way. And then he says, Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. Now, if we think about that, that means that the church's job is to speak about and to show forth the beauty and the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ. So in other words, in the church, the glory of Christ is to be manifested in real and profound ways. So the big vision is there in Ephesians all through the book, I would argue. Now let's think for a moment about Christian bodybuilding. And I'll walk you through this passage and show you kind of where I get this and what it means. But I think that it speaks to the vision and the work of the church. This idea of Christian bodybuilding. First of all, in this passage, verse 11, is what I called personal trainers. There are personal trainers. Look at verse 11 again. It says, and he, that is Jesus, he gave gifts, he scattered them abroad. Every person in the church who belongs to Christ has been given grace and gifts. But there are specific offices and callings and people who God specifically appoints as personal trainers in the church, five of them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors, and teachers. Christian bodybuilding is helped along as God appoints personal trainers in the church. Now, there is a lot of disagreement in verses 11 and 12 of this passage. Uh, number one, some people believe that apostles and prophets still exist today. Other people say, no, they don't exist. I tend to fall in that end of the camp. That is to say that at the founding of the church, Jesus, for instance, appointed some specifically as apostles. The apostles were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Paul was an apostle who saw the resurrected Christ in an untimely and a different way. But there are these apostles, and there were also prophets. Now, keep in mind, you did not have the New Testament scriptures and the Gospels written. So Jesus appointed specific men to these offices to see to the founding of the church. Over and over, the Bible will talk about apostles and prophets as laying a foundation. You don't continue to lay a foundation as you build a house. It's laid. Okay, so apostles and prophets, and here's what I would say about that. I think that there are people who do apostolic type ministry today. They're not capital A apostles. For instance, missionaries. Apostle means a messenger or one who is sent, and we do that in the church today. There are people we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaking about the various gifts that become evident in the church. One is called the gift of prophecy. It doesn't say it's the office of prophet. It just means that I think that there are times when people speak not on the same plane as Scripture, but they do speak a word that the Lord impresses upon them to share with others. So we could talk about those as being gifts, not offices. But 
that is a question we have. Do apostles and prophets exist today? I would say no, not in the same way that the apostle Paul, for instance, was an apostle. They laid the foundation of the church. And if that wasn't enough, we've got evangelists. People go, well, what is that? Was that a missionary helper? Is that someone who speaks the good news? I think it's a person who goes out and they winsomely spread the gospel and draw people into the kingdom to accept Christ. It's someone who's been gifted for that. Specifically, many times, the uh, apostles' uh, helpers were called evangelists. They were people that went out, were sent out, or left in a place to draw the net to bring people to Christ. Then you think, okay, now it's getting easier. We've got pastors or shepherds and teachers left. Yes, that's what we have left, pastors and teachers. But there is disagreement. Is that the same person here? It says, and he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So some people hyphenate that, say it's pastors, teachers. Oh my gosh, I don't know. You know, there's a lot that we could say here. I would say all pastors are supposed to be teachers. They have to be apt. That's one of the requirements of a pastor. They have to be inclined to teach and able to teach. But not all teachers are pastors. And so you've got these five gifting areas. I would say three of them are active today. That's the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. But here's what we see. God uses people. He uses people in the church to do this personal training type role. And listen, these people are flawed. The apostle Paul was flawed. He said things he shouldn't. You know, there were things that he was weak in. There were things he was strong in. And, and that's not to say these are perfect people, but God puts people in the church, individuals to help others, just like a personal trainer would do in the gym. God uses people. We tend to want to make discipleship very impersonal. We make it all about books. Hey, nothing wrong with books. The Bible is a book. Paul thought it was fitting to write down these things and send them as letters. Letters are good. All kinds of things are good for our discipleship, but we cannot replace people. People. You know, we learn not just by information, but by example and personal encouragement. People that know us will come to us and speak into our lives. We need people to help train us in the way that we should go. And I begin to think back on my life and my formation about different pastors and evangelists and teachers that have profoundly shaped my life. And I'll tell you, many times I did not even realize how profound it was. I thought about my parents, both Sunday school teachers in church. My dad was a deacon, drove the bus, did all kinds of things, always drug us to church did mission trips, and took us along as little kids. And I'm sure it was a pain to take us along, but they took us along. And they shaped the way that me and my brothers think about the church. I know it did profoundly for me. I thought about a little single lady named Miss McLaughlin who taught Bible in the little Christian school that I went to in elementary school. Miss McLaughlin was about this tall, and uh, she would get up at chapel and she would tell Bible stories in a way that I have never heard. I, I'm telling you, I was probably six, seven, eight years old when I would listen to her tell Bible stories. And I can still picture myself sitting there in that chapel and the Bible absolutely coming alive. As she began specifically, I remember one story about Eli and the calling of Samuel. And how she portrayed that scripture and spoke it orally and it absolutely gripped my heart. She made the Bible come alive to me. I think about an evangelist named Angel Martinez who had most of the New Testament memorized. And he came to our church when I was just a little kid. 
and he preached the gospel. He was from Mexico, and he wore these real flamboyant suits, and I mean, he had your full attention. He had the evangelist hair and the whole thing, and here's what I know. When that evangelist, Angel Martinez, got up and, and, and preached the gospel and preached about eternity, he scared the me out of hell. And I'm not kidding. I will tell you, in, in, in you know, looking back on my story, I thought I was saved at that point, and I don't believe that I was, but here's what I know. When he came and spoke about hell, I never have thought about it as unreal before. I think at that moment, I got the fear of the Lord through the preaching of an evangelist who also told us that there was a way unto salvation to not receive the con condemnation that was due to us. And I thought about Pastor Bill Sutton, who just died here not too long ago, who was my pastor all through elementary school. He was a former uh, Baylor football player, big, hulking man, spoke uh, the word of God and taught with great clarity and with conviction and with strength. And he was a strong leader, but he was also not afraid to shed a tear. He was the same guy who would come to a little kid and, and talk to you about peanut butter or talk to you about football or whatever. He was just an approachable guy. I thought about a youth pastor named Willis Moore. Willis Moore had, been, had grown up on the mission field, and this guy could do absolutely anything. He knew about everything. He could ride a skateboard uh, standing on his hands. He could do all kinds of things, and that guy, I just looked at him, I thought, man, this guy is amazing. But you know what was most amazing about him? He cared for every one of us in his youth group in a unique way. He knew our name from the first week he was there, and he cared about those who were mentally challenged, I remember being on a trip one time, and he asked to borrow my uh, fingernail clippers, and I said, for what? And he said, he said, hey, there's one of these guys over here, and his nose hairs are sticking down, and I'm going to clip it. And I'm like, you're not doing that with my fingernail clippers. <laughs> and I began to make fun of him, and he called me out. And he said, you know, because that guy is mentally challenged or whatever, gives you no right. And he loved us. He was always kind to me. But I remember that rebuke from a guy who was so compassionate towards everybody in that group. And I learned things from Willis Moore. I think about a pastor named Brother Blaine Craig who had just gotten out of seminary. He was actually younger than me, but he led a small little congregation with such grace and compassion and utter care for the word of God. And he taught, he was the one preaching when I uh, was converted to Christ. He spent seven weeks preaching about the sayings of Jesus from the cross. And I don't know how you get seven sermons out of that, but he did it. And my life was radically changed. Here's what I know. That God changes lives through the personal investment and encouragement and teaching and guidance of real people. We dare not farm out discipleship to the internet. Okay? As I think about personal trainers, I realize that that is a role that I'm now in as a pastor and as a teacher. That my job and the pastor's job is not to do everything for every, everybody. It is to equip. It's to lift up. It's to build up. It's to help people down the road. Every person in the church has a ministry that God has given them. That moves me to the second point. We started with personal trainers. That is the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then there is personal training. The idea that the personal trainer cannot lift your weights, cannot exercise on your behalf, though they can do it with you, come alongside you, 
That there has to be personal training. And so what he says in, in uh, verses 11 and 12, that God has give, given these five roles specifically for the equipping of the saints to the work of ministry or for the work of ministry. Once again, we have a little bit of a translation issue. There are some people that say, well, actually, there's a comma before the word for. And so he gave those five roles to do the work of ministry to equip others. And so there's some disagreement over how you translate that. But here's what I would say is if we are equipping people in the, in the congregation, there is in mind that they have a ministry to do. That there is a ministry that you can do that I could never do. You have opportunities and influence. And I'll tell you, I think one of them is just in our daily life. That we are to be equipping people to not see the ministry as what we do in here for a couple of hours a week. Though it's part of it. Folks, the ministry that you have been given may very well be, it may very well be right there where you work. It may be, and it is, in your home, with your family. There is a work of ministry that God has given you to do that only you can do. And so leaders are supposed to help equip, raise up people to go out and do the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. There is a ministry for everyone. God did not give you gifts and grace for it to be stagnant. He gave it to you to be put to use. And listen, as you go about and do the work of ministry, as you get equipped and comfortable in a sense of your calling, I'm going to tell you something. God will use you to profoundly change people's lives for eternity. You. You. And you never know as you just do your work of telling Bible stories, as you do your work of just sharing about Jesus, as you do your work of traveling around, maybe going to a far off place that the Lord would have you to go, you just don't know whose life you will change, but you will change lives. All right? And so there is personal training that you must undergo to be ready for the ministry that you have. Every member plays a part. So here is the picture. We are the body of Christ. He's the head. He's calling the shots. He's leading the way. He's sending out the impulses to each individual part. And we're to move and act and work together as separate members, but united members in that body of Christ. But every part and every member has to be trained for the work of ministry. That brings us to the last thing that is the purpose of the training. What are we after? Here's what I see in this passage. The purpose of the training of Christian bodybuilding is maturing in our Christian stature. You know, when I was a teenager, there were two guys, well, as a kid and a teenager, there were two guys that every guy wanted to look like. Number one was Lou Ferrigno, who is the incredible uh, Hulk, right? Is that, is that right? We didn't want to be green, but I wouldn't have mind being green if I could look like Lou Ferrigno, right? And then who, who do you think the other one is? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. Every guy wanted to have that kind of stature and physique. I mean, I even had a friend who had a poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing this thing in his room. I was like, I don't know about you, man, but he's, that was the goal. He was a workout junkie, and that's what he wanted to look at. Like, And he would study the different muscles and all those kinds of things, and he wanted to have that kind of stature. We all did. But the question 
was, and the question is, are we willing to put in the work to attain to the stature that we're looking towards? That is, mature Christian stature. And so that's what is in mind here, that we would become fully formed, looking just like Jesus, until we all reach a unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son in maturity. That's what we're to be doing. You know, let me say this. Evangelism, reaching the lost, is one really important duty of the church, but it's not the only one. It is not the only one. It's important, but it's not our only purpose. We have a purpose of worship, of coming together to meet with the Lord with the congregation of saints. We have the purpose of fellowship, just building Christian friendships so that we can do the one another's together, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, teaching and training. That is a purpose. This place is not only for reaching the lost. Certainly we're to do that. But how are we going to do that best? We're going to do it best when members are trained to go out and actually do the work of ministry and evangelism. Let's consider really briefly, there's three main things that I think are here in terms of what a mature Christian looks like. This is the guiding star. This is what we're trying to achieve. Just for a moment, Christian maturity. Number one, this fully formed in the likeness of Christ, maturity. The first thing it indicates is there's more than a basic or superficial knowledge of Jesus. In other words, and yes, you've got to come through the gate in the door of Jesus. But you're expected to keep growing, to grow into full stature of Christ's likeness. I think that what is in view here is we move beyond initial salvation. You never move away from your initial salvation, but you build on it. Bringing the teaching and the life of Jesus into every arena and aspect of our lives, into our speech, into our relationships, our work ethic, into our entertainment life our family life, our financial life. Maturity means that we don't just stop at the door. But it seems to me that a lot of times we get hung up right there. Well, I'm going to heaven. I'll see you when I get there. There's more. There's more. It's called discipleship and growing in Christ-likeness. And so in the church, why do we do the things we do? Why do we continue to do Sunday school for people who are already saved? Because the Bible tells us to to grow in Christ-likeness, to mature, to gain more. There is always more, folks. There is always more to know. And it's not just about inert knowledge, though we need knowledge. It says we're to grow in our knowledge of the Son of God, growing to know Jesus more and more in our lives. It's a relationship. It's experiencing that glory unto glory and sanctification and growth. So, I think it looks... Number one, maturity has in mind that we move beyond our initial salvation experience and we grow in the teachings of Christ and we apply them. Now, now listen, Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. We're pretty good at teaching a lot of the commands. I'm not sure how good we do on the teaching people to obey and then holding folks accountable. That one's a little bit tough. Here's the next thing we see about maturity. Maturity has in mind that we're no longer children. That we move to a point where we're not easily swayed and gullible 
by the trickery, the craftiness, and the deception that is out there. Listen really quickly. Can you listen quickly or only speak quickly? Anyway, listen. We need to grow into maturity so that we're not swept away with every wind of doctrine. Did you know there's false teaching out there that will lead you astray if you don't know the truth? He says we're to be stout. We're supposed to come to convictions about biblical things. Does that mean that we'll agree on everything? Absolutely not. But there are core and fundamental things that we need to learn. Doctrinal training and teaching. We need to teach biblical doctrine. But I'll tell you, people aren't too excited about biblical doctrine. It is absolutely essential so that we're not blown here and there. I tell you about every two or three years, there's some big movement that masquerades as Christianity. There's some new popular teacher that he says a lot, he or she says a lot of true things, but then there's some things you go, I've never heard that before. Hey, listen, beware of anything you've never heard before. Could very well be a reason why you've never heard it in the church before. And we have to learn to be counterfeit spotters. You've heard this, I'm sure, over and over, that when they're training people to uh, spot counterfeit money, they don't try to put every kind of counterfeit before them. They have them study the real thing. When you know the real thing, then you can easily spot those that don't match up to the standard. And so he says, you know, we've got to grow in maturity so that we're not blown around and swept away and we're not gullible and easily persuaded to go after false teaching and false doctrines. Did you know that there are deceitful, wicked, crafty, tricky people and they come into the church? You know, churches are kind of like a, uh, sitting ducks, if you will. If you don't have people in the church, number one, like pastors, part of a pastor's job is not just to feed the sheep, it's to drive away wolves. And we say, well, I just want to get along. We can all, you know, we all get along. We don't want to say anything harsh. Sometimes there are wolves that come in the door and there need to be people who are willing to call wolves out. Because you know what a wolf wants to do? Chew you up and spit you out. There are people that sit around and I can't, I mean it's hard for us to fathom because we think people are generally good and whatever. There are people who see the church as a playground for their evil and wicked schemes. Okay? And there are people that would take people hostage and captive and lead them astray. And he says, you know, maturity gets us to the point where we're not easily led astray. So we need to be aware of that fact that as we mature, we become stout, we become solid in our convictions, and we're not taken away. And also, folks, we can help others from being led astray. That's the last thing about maturity, verse 15. As we mature, we need to come to the point, the goal is, this full stature is, that we speak the truth in love. Say truth in love. It's not just truth. It's not just love. It's speaking the truth in love. It's not just knowing the truth and loving people. It is speaking the truth in love. That's how the church is nourished and built up. These two twin pillars, so essential. Now we're speaking about the truth that is true doctrine, scriptural truth, the truth that's in Jesus, and the love of Jesus. We have to come to the point where we are able to speak the truth in love. You know what my goal is for you, friend? My goal is that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you're snatched from the pit of hell. 
And that your eternal destiny is an inheritance with Jesus Christ on high. And you will share in his glory forever. You are saved. That's my first goal for you. And then when you come to that point, my second goal for you is that you undergo a training process that is slow and arduous. That builds muscles slowly over time. Spiritual muscles. That you come to the point that you know Jesus Christ. You are in a vibrant fellowship with him. You know him. As the Son of God, He's your Lord and Savior. He's in your heart. You're yielded to the Spirit, but you're also trained in mind. And you have doctrinal solidity. So you're not carried away and pushed around and easily deceived. But also, a goal is that you become a person like the Apostle Paul and like those that I mentioned that have gone before in my life that you in your sphere of influence become a person who is able and willing to speak the truth in love. You have to be able to defend the faith and to help others understand the faith. We all need to get to that point, speaking the truth in love. It is absolutely essential. I tell you, I probably tend towards thinking the truth or maybe speaking the truth. But even this morning, I caught myself wanting to speak some truth and haven't asked, I mean, this, this just slapped me right upside the head. Hey, before you go speak the truth, is love your motivating factor? Don't even say it if you can't speak it in love. Speak the truth in love. We have to get to that point. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, that is a mark of maturity, isn't it? You know, when you're a little kid and some big daunting person comes before you, it's really hard to say, I don't believe that. <laughs> it's hard to hold your own. But you know what? When you grow up and you are trained and you're confident in what you believe and know, you can say, hey, yeah, no, that, that's a bunch of baloney. I don't believe that. Here's, here's the truth. That's a, that's a mark of maturity. And it's a mark of maturity to be able to do it in such a way that you don't alienate people I have a little bit of maturing to do <laughs> I think probably we all do we'll never get there but hey the poster of Jesus on our bedroom wall he spoke the truth and he did it in love and he went to the cross in love for us this summer um, I'm going to be offering probably a series, re repeating series of trainings on uh, gospel conversations, how to have gospel conversations. It's probably going to be, depending on the interest I get and the feedback I get, probably going to last about four weeks. And I did this with a little pilot group back in uh, the fall. And uh, we did some things. I think it was really a good thing. And I saw a lot of good fruit in my own life and in the lives of those who participated. I'm just wanting to repeat that. And it's about training Christians how to move from having just everyday conversations, you know, just talking to people about this and that and moving it to a gospel conversation. So just being faithful to speak the truth in love. That's a big part of that. Speaking the gospel in love. So gospel conversations. I guess what I've got in mind, I hope you're listening to this because I'm going to ask you if you would, if you're interested to sign up a little interest form. I've got in mind probably going to do it uh, during our discipleship uh, or our uh, Wednesday night hour. 
All right, I'm going to offer it then in the summer. And I'm willing to do it on Sunday nights if, as long as it doesn't conflict with some other things we're planning. I'm willing to come and do it on another night if there's interest. Thursday night, Monday night. I don't know if I'm willing to do it at 6 a.m., but I, I would think about it. I kind of had in mind nights, but uh, here's what I'd like for you to do if, if you're interested in that. Now listen, this is not a class, meaning I'm going to stand up here, tell you a bunch of stuff, and say, see you later. It's going to be a workout. It's going to be a training class where from the very first 10 minutes, we're learning things and then say, all right, now practice it and do it. So it's meant to get you engaging and doing the actual thing of speaking the truth in love. If you're interested in that, have any inkling of interest whatsoever. Now, listen, if you don't, shame on you. If you don't, that, I'm good with that. Don't sign the paper, okay? I, 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 I want to hear from and see the names of people who you, you're like, I, I need to do that. I want to do that. Put your name on the paper. It asks for your phone number where I can text you or call you. And then it says preferred meeting night. So again, my preference would be Wednesday or Sunday nights. But if there's another night, you just cannot do that. And there's another night, another time, put that on there. So what I'm going to do is take that. Hey, you're not committing your life. I'm not going to harass you like a salesman, you know, to, to do the thing. I just want to see who's available this summer and wants to do this, and we'll put the classes together based on interest, all right? That's where this is going. That's where Ephesians 4 is. Pastors, teachers, equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what that sign-up sheet is about, all right? That's a goal of mine, is to help equip you, equip you to do the work of ministry that God has given you to do. I'm going to close with this. John Stott, in his little commentary on Ephesians 4, sums all of this up very neatly. He says in Ephesians 4, the apostle sets before us the picture of a deepening fellowship, an eagerness to maintain visible Christian unity, and to recover, if it is lost, an active every-member ministry and a steady growth to maturity by holding the truth in love. This has to be a north star for us as a church. Building the kingdom by investing personally, sharing the gospel, experiencing the glory of Christ. Would you bow with me this morning? Father, first of all, thank you that in your wisdom, you have set things in motion for a self-perpetuating ministry that began thousands of years ago and that you entrusted that ministry to men and women who would go out and show and tell to share, to give example, to encourage and would multiply the gospel in churches all across the world and Lord we see today your infinite wisdom works that when we hold to the pattern that you have set you do amazing things you call men and women and boys and girls, to join your eternal kingdom. And Lord, we thank you that you have invited us into that kingdom. And we just rejoice and glory in that today, that we are a part of the eternal kingdom of Christ. Would you help us is our prayer, Lord. Would you help me as a pastor to walk ahead in the simple and straightforward path 
of being a personal trainer, an encourager, a teacher. And Lord, help our church to get on board, not with passive listening, but with true active learning and obedience to the commands of Christ. Help us all in this church together to mature into the unity of the faith and of the doctrine that we would not be at all subject to the schemes and deceitfulness and trickery of those who would divide us and conquer us, of those who would lead us away from the truth of your word. Lord, help us to stand together in strength like one body, the body of Christ, with members that are all attuned to our one head, Jesus Christ. Father, by your power, by your word, by your spirit, and by your grace through our obedience, would you help us in this endeavor? Lord, would you save people? Would you grow this church? Would you be pleased to do something miraculous and astounding here at First Baptist Church of Valley Springs such that we would look at each other in awe and say that it's not our doing, but certainly the hand of the Lord has done these things. Lord, help us to be together in this, to strive towards the stature of the fullness of Christ.